Well, hello there. Oh my goodness, it's so nice to see you. It's episode 29 of your favorite podcast, The Score. Welcome to it. My name is Rocky Jones, and this is Minnesota Opera's uh, deep dive into all things opera, classical, music, pop culture, theater, as seen through the eyes of three Black opera administrators and artists. And we are so happy to have you here. As always, I'm here with my two stupendously wonderful, talented, brilliant, incredible Black co-hosts, uh, first and foremost, uh, the Vice President of Impact here at Minnesota Opera, uh, Mr. Lee Bynum. Hello, Lee. Hola for all of those bilingual folks in the audience. Oh, hey. Hello, <laughs> Espanol for all y'all. And of course, as always, the luminous, incredible Paige Reynolds. Hello, Paige. How are you today? Howdy. Doing good. <laughs> now, all of y'all are lying because we are looking out the window. <laughs> I told you, I told you it was fake spring. <laughs> There's snow on the ground. I am not going outside. I am not shoveling it. I refuse. I am in a foul mood today. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not on its own. I'm not taking care of that. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's not my responsibility. Mother Nature can go shovel it herself. Please stop playing with Mother Nature. She has already made it very clear that she is not on our side. So that is true. Good point. That is true. Maybe we should <laughs> maybe we should put together an offering of some sort. I'm sorry, Mother Nature. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll complain a little less about the snow, but I'm still not shoveling it. No, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what a busy couple of weeks it has been since we last recorded. Uh, just wild things happening out in these streets. <laughs> and by the streets, I mean the U.S. Capitol and the <laughs> Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I do want to send all of my love and strength and healing vibes to Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Mm -hmm. You acquitted yourself with grace and poise when I certainly don't know if I would have been able to mm -hmm. <laughs> through all that. So I was just thoroughly impressed. By, I know by... for a fact I would not be able to. <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Oh my gosh. Just... It amazes me just watching the performance of those Republican mm -hmm. senators. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think we kind of expected all of that foolery. The thing that I was just kind of disappointed by was nobody except for Cory Booker on the Democratic side, like, you know, being out there, you know, defending their nominee from these ridiculous attacks. Um, yeah. It was just, it was disappointing to watch. But she was amazing. And that picture of her and her daughter. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it it doesn't sit comfortably. The, the last time I watched a confirmation hearing was Brett Kavanaugh. I mm -hmm. skipped over Amy Coney Barrett's uh, confirmation for about 35 different reasons. But the 
two confirmations juxtaposed boy is that uncomfortable mm -hmm. right and even sitting in the space of thinking about how blackness and gender play into every single facet of society it was still deeply disturbing to think about the lack of problematizing that happened while it was happening in the think pieces that came afterwards in the casual conversations that i've managed to overhear since then it it was just a reminder of how um how much anti-blackness and misogyny are a part of our daily experiences mm -hmm. to the extent that people don't even think to pause and reflect on how uh, this violence is kind of affecting us as a society right like we we managed to kind of move right through it for the most part and i was saddened and honestly disturbed that more of my timeline like on social media for instance wasn't completely unsettled it was only mm -hmm. like 50 percent of the way there right as opposed to sunday night when my timeline was on fuego right like <laughs> well, I, last sunday night <laughs> yes sorry <laughs> the sunday that just passed <laughs> for those of us in this part of the multiverse right like it was really a a moment because i don't remember seeing that kind of immediate response to anything that wasn't a versus like that quick um and it was the same black twitter on both days right mm -hmm. so like there were a lot of moments in the last 10 days or so that i've just had to pause to reflect on where we are where we are not and the kind of information that i am allowing into my head just sort of casually right like whose perspectives end up appearing on social media, like really go to how you experience and think about an event. And I realized that I need to be following a lot of very different people mm -hmm. after comparing, you know, various things in the last several days. Yeah, I, I, I also watched some of the confirmation hearing and I don't think I had watched any either since Brett Brett Kavanaugh, if I watched any of that, I may have watched bits and pieces. Um, <laughs> but even this one, I, I I couldn't watch it all the way through. Um, like emotionally could not watch it all the way through. <laughs> um, and just like stick around. I did appreciate getting to catch some of Cory Booker bringing us back to the joy of the moment. Mm -hmm. Like, he can be a little much for me sometimes, but I really appreciated his energy in this particular situation because <laughs> it was truly a bomb. If he had not said anything, it would have gone uh, the like just how momentous the moment was very well could have just gone um, completely unacknowledged and it would have just been days and days of her being berated. Um, so I really appreciate that. And, you know, as the, the moment that stood out to me when, you know, he was talking about, because I, I love my ancestors and I talk to my ancestors and he was like, I sit and I talk to my ancestors too in my study. And he's like, I want to let you know right now that the ancestors are proud of you and they're surrounding you right now. And I was like, yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody finally said it. Like, 
(laughs) (laughs) Like, we're so proud of you. Like that moment gave me chills. It gave me chills. Cause I was just like, yes, like no matter what's going on, like we are really with her. Um, And I I too observed like the same difference in what people were talking about um, compared to compared to the Oscars. And I do know for me anyway, it's, and especially as a black woman, like I have a feeling not, not everybody else ain't gonna have the same reasons and I ain't gonna have the same excuses. I don't know why everybody else didn't watch it, but I know a lot of us did not watch <laughs> the confirmation hearings because it's triggering. Like mm-hmm. it's a lot. I couldn't watch it all for that reason. I watched some clips of what happened and even after then I was like should I have even watched that because of the way my body feels right now like it was just a little too real a lot of people I were like I I actually received that like for real and I know this is momentous for her and I will celebrate her but I cannot watch that which I I totally I totally understand um because I felt that way a lot of the time watching it. I was, <laughs> there was a point where it's like, uh, do I need to, do I need to keep watching to be supportive when this is so real for me right now? And I've, I've sat with white men yelling at me for whatever reason. And yeah, it was, it was a lot and made me, I guess, really puzzled about how uh, people who are elected to office, like (laughs) our national offices, like are just allowed to act like that. That was like really puzzling. I was just like, oh, like they're really, is anyone gonna stop this? Can, is there a way it can be stopped? Is there any base, like anybody, somebody, dang, like we're really, this is just okay interesting really interesting so I mean I don't know what else could have been done Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do not know but it is still like extremely I feel like problematic and something people haven't fully reckoned with the fact that yeah just the a number of irrelevant rants that happened the strange questioning about her faith sentencing of sex offenders and just craziness just craziness when you look at this woman's body of work all that she has accomplished and these are the questions that you are are choosing to ask her of all people especially given the fact that you had the opportunity to question her just a few months ago when she sailed through her confirmation to the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. So I'm just sort of wondering what is it exactly that has changed between then and now. But it's interesting, I I learned something during the confirmation hearings that I did not know, which is the history of the confirmation hearings. I just always said, and Lee, I'm sure you can talk way more about this than I did, than, than, than I can. Um, but what I did not know is that there weren't always confirmation hearings. That wasn't mm-hmm. like, uh, that, that's a, a 20th century invention when the first Jewish man was nominated to be a part of 
the Supreme Court and the senators went, oh no, 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 no. Oh no, no, we need to question him publicly. <laughs> and that is how this tradition uh, began because of anti-Semitism. So of course, you know, it makes sense that, you know, the natural sort of through line would be <laughs> here we are in, in 2022 watching this black woman have to go through essentially personal and professional assassination and of her character. I learned something new today. Yeah. Isn't that wild? A lot of things make more sense. Isn't that wild? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you brought Justice Brandeis and and sort of how that played out into the conversation, right? Because I feel like uh, I definitely hear your your point, Paige, about being triggered. And and it's it's a moment for me where I have to remind myself that there may be another option other than walking through life on that particular hairline like at all times right because i feel like the the whole james baldwin piece of to be a negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost almost all of the time right Mm -hmm. and i feel like that is something that at a certain age one becomes so accustomed to that the shift to a different space becomes the thing that is the challenge, right? Being out of the space where you are aware of how frequently you feel under siege, right? And I, I think the the moment of of Cory Booker, who I've been hot and cold with for all kinds of reasons over the last many years, when he showed up the way that he did, it meant a lot to me because I had felt mm-hmm. so many times over the course of my career that I am sitting out mm-hmm. somewhere by myself and waiting for somebody in a moment to say something. I'm like, wow, y'all don't, I don't see everybody's jumping on me right now, right? Like I felt that so many times that I forget that there is a possibility of being in another place where you don't have to feel on an island professionally, right? And I think that kind of peace was also very present for me, like in the conversation around the Oscars, like what is it always to be under so much pressure under a microscope, constantly watched and judged and and anticipated and dealing with stereotype threat on one side and then on the other side, having other people of color projecting onto you that your behavior is conversant with the politics of respectability when you mm-hmm. just may be in a place where you're like, no, I just don't do that because I don't do that, right? Like there's so many pieces to both of those things that the juxtaposition between the two for me it's amazing that I'm sitting here having this conversation with y'all right now because there's a piece of me that wanted to go on vacation, but I know I can't afford to leave Earth, so there was nowhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a wild week to be yeah. Black and mm. in America and to be sort of in your thoughts, right? Like there are just so many... I, I feel like I felt every single emotion uh, possible in the last couple of days from compassion to frustration to sadness to confusion to wanting to hug famous strangers to wanting to, you know, acknowledge that I am also Lupita in so many moments over the course of the day. So, <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Like I'm watching the, I, I just watched the Oscars and I'm going to bed and my heart is racing. <laughs> There's adrenaline <laughs> 
coursing through my body. <laughs> and I can't sleep after watching the Oscars. Oh, <laughs> like it's so wild. It's so crazy. <laughs> right. And I thought the I thought the conversation piece of the Oscars was going to be what Zendaya had on. Because that to me, I, I actually don't watch the Oscars anymore because I find them absolutely infuriating. And what I do do is like, I'll sit down and look at those fashions at seven, mm -hmm. and then I'll come back around midnight and see who all black did not win. And that is usually my Oscars experience. Mm -hmm. But when I got on Twitter on Sunday night, I was like, Damien, Damien, can I tell you what happened? He's like, I don't care. I'm like, yes, you yes, do. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there are so many pieces of it that I that I feel a way about, and you know, the the reaction to it to me as the you know as a mm -hmm. social historian, that's the piece that I think I really want to unpack. Having spent the last twenty some years in academic context studying Black people, there is a tremendous amount there, and I you know I was sharing with. Um, a, a very well-known colleague to our listeners, Garrett McQueen, we mm -hmm. actually had a very interesting conversation about the slap just yesterday, right? And the idea, the number of different demographic levels that people's reaction reflected about the multiplicity of folks in the Black community, first of all, that in and of itself, I could teach a whole college seminar on what that was. But then beside it, just as a man north of 40, Boy, do I not want to live in a world where like men who are 15 years my senior are just out here fighting like like mm. there was also that piece of y'all are actually old, right? Like y'all are actually very grown. They're old enough to be your parents page, right? And like for that to be a thing, my relationship to Real Housewives, which used to be my jam, changed forever the day that I saw Portia grab a chunk of Kenya's hair. Like it just changed what it was for me because I'm a person who I just don't, I don't like watching fighting, even like boxing movies. I love Michael B. Jordan. I'm not watching Creed one, two or three, right? It's just not my thing. And as much as I may have felt that Kenya needed to get dragged, that was not what I meant when I would say that, right? Like there was a way that it was so fundamentally disorienting to me and my sense of what I want to be in my space that I have never been able to get back to where I was with what at one point had been like a Sunday night tradition. I watched whatever housewives they were showing because I found the whole thing just so wackily entertaining. And then after that, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't trust that I was watching something that I would be able to derive enjoyment out of. It just shifted for me. And that's kind of where this one caught me too. Like everything else that happened, it was like, I don't tune into the Oscars for that. And I don't really know how as a society, we are just here now where this is, this is just what we do now, right? Like I don't, I don't want to participate. Like I just really don't. I don't, 
I don't want to be in that world where people are also fighting at work because as much as it was an award show, they were also it's at work, work. Yeah. Right. And like, mm -hmm. if we are having a conversation about the budget next week at Minnesota opera, I want to feel very good if I'm saying something controversial that nobody's going to come across the table at me. Right. And it may seem like a gross exaggeration, but I remember years and years ago when I had my first job at a college, that was when someone, I think it was the University of Alabama, shot up a room full of people because they didn't get tenure. I don't know if y'all remember that because mm -hmm. this I really do. was, right. And it was like, is that what we're doing? And you know what I mean? It was like, I didn't, I didn't think that this was even in the realm of a thing that was going to happen in this kind of a job in 2003 or whatever year it was. So I also felt like that just fundamentally disrupted my sense of what industry we all work in and was just profoundly disquieting to me as a person who works in this corner of the entertainment industry, right? Like I just, I was ill-prepared emotionally for what, this moment is for a professional in any part of the performing arts. Yeah. I know. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, the, I, I definitely resonate with like watching it or, okay, well, I wasn't watching the Oscars, but if I was to watch it and then be like, whoa, I didn't ask for this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hold on. Like, this is not, this is not what I came here for. And, and the shock of it and that kind of thing. I also put my, I think after I got over that, I put myself in the shoes of, of Jada <laughs> for one and how humiliating that must have felt when the joke was made um yeah. I don't yeah. know I could not put myself in her shoes with like the aftermath of uh her husband then confronting <laughs> uh Chris in a very direct way because there's all kinds of ways you could feel about that yeah. um yeah but then when I put myself in the shoes of uh of Will not that I think he did necessarily the right thing, um, but I can definitely identify with having um, an impulsive moment of anger, especially um, watching your loved one. Um, she was visibly uncomfortable at the joke mm -hmm. and like seeing her reaction and knowing that this is somebody who has come for your wife before. Um, has come for black women in general before and feeling all those eyes on you as it happens and the flare of anger that you two have been embarrassed like that and reacting that like i i get it some people do not get it at all but i i do and at the same time i was like could you maybe like slapped him at the after party instead like i <laughs> <laughs> Cause he did kind of have it coming, but like, could you not done it there? Uh, just a lot yeah. of things came up and not that I, I no, I ain't even gonna say that. I ain't even gonna say that, but <laughs> like, ugh, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I empathize with 
just about everybody except for maybe Chris Rock and I have my own reasons for that but yeah it was just it felt like just really unfortunate that it had to um, that it unfolded on international television like that yeah I mean I feel I feel both of you and then I agree with what both of you are saying you know I, I feel as though Will Smith did not have to slap the man but I just go back and I think about how many people, how many producers, writers, like the Academy, how many rehearsals they went through um, so that this ableist joke made it to the telecast, that not one person, the person who was putting the joke in the teleprompter. <laughs> um, Actually, it wasn't there. Uh, what, they, they, was they said it? later that it was not. Chris Rock did that off the cuff. Ah, I see. Yeah, ABC very quickly was like, oh, we don't, that wasn't part of the script. <laughs> gotcha. We didn't do that, yeah. <laughs> well then, Chris Rock has even less of an excuse then. You know, and especially, you know, as somebody who produced the documentary Good Hair, he should understand more than anybody the complicated relationships that Black people, specifically Black women, have to their hair. And for him to pop off this joke so that this Black woman and her hair become the butt of the joke in front of this room full of affluent white people, I feel is not great. <laughs> um, doesn't feel good, doesn't land good, doesn't sit good on my heart um, that he went out there and did that. So like you said, Paige, I, I emphasize with Jada in that moment and just sort of seeing her face, seeing her roll her eyes and seeing like even Will at first being like, you know, kind of willing to just sort of laugh it off like, oh, ha, 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 and then like realizing, oh, no, wait, actually, the person that I love most in the world is actually like very, very hurt by this. And then seeing how that, you know, could trigger. I mean, you could have just sat there and yelled at him. <laughs> you didn't have to smack him in front of like a billion people on TV though. You know, and I just sat there and I was just like, oh my God, the takes, the takes tomorrow. I knew it as soon as it happened. Yeah, as I was soon like, as it oh, happened. We're about to be think peace no. to death. <laughs> and I just got so tired so immediately. It was, oh, it was just instantaneous. Like just my body is tired. <laughs> you you know, there's one other piece of this that I that I feel like is a very complicated piece of context. And it goes to before she was blackballed, when Monique was refusing to participate in the circuit promoting herself for an award for Precious. Mm -hmm. And the intrusiveness of the press and the ways that you have to open yourself up, right? And I think here's what's so interesting to me about how all of this has played out. Jada has been so transparent and freely sharing of so many aspects of their lives, right? And I've noticed, and you know, we have this 30 year relationship now with Will, right? I feel like in the last several months, he's been more open about things. Mm -hmm. Like he obviously had the, the memoirs come out, but I think just in the promoting of the movie, doing the award circuit, he's talked so much more openly about who he is, what his struggles have been. And, and then the, the very uncomfortable reality that when you open yourself up and you open your personal lives up to the press, 
you no longer get to curate in the same way what people are going to talk about and in what context, right? So it's like this very uncomfortable piece of if you play the game, to what extent are you opening yourself up to people freely commenting on so many details, right? Because part of what was so uncomfortable about Twitter is where some of the jokes went with like the August Alsina stuff, right? That oh, I, gosh, I hated that. Yeah, absolutely, oh. right? It was like this, nobody asked for this part of a thing nobody no. already asked for. But on top <laughs> of it, it was like, and yet, this is why some aspects of doing the podcast are even terrifying to me, mm-hmm. right? Because I find mm-hmm. myself talking about my life and things that I've struggled with much more openly than I do with anybody who is not like, quote, a close friend, right? And, you know, not that we have 9 million people watching what we're doing maybe one day, but just the reality (laughs) that anything could be taken out of context or the fact that I've gone down one road will mean that people feel comfortable pulling a thread that I didn't necessarily want somebody to like, that is also a piece of just like where we are as a society, right? Like that breakdown between what gets to be personal and then what isn't personal because the world feels like they have access to you via social media or, you know, you saying one or two things in the public. And and I'm definitely not trying to imply that Will and Jada in any way, shape or form did a thing to deserve that particular comment right and at the same time it's like we are all very exposed right now even in ways that we're not realizing we are Mm -hmm. right like i like really did have a moment of do i need to make my social media all private just because you know I'm sharing more than maybe I understand I'm sharing and somebody will think it's okay then to engage with me in a different kind of way. I don't yet have the answer to that, or maybe I do have the answer to that and I just don't feel comfortable what the answer is. But that has also been a piece of like struggling with what that moment is and the reality that Will Smith has spent 30 years carefully crafting a public image and now it is it is not going to be that ever again right good bad or indifferent whatever you feel about will smith today is probably different than what you felt about him on saturday like that's just the the moment that we've had whether he's risen in your esteem as i saw people writing on twitter or whether now you feel like he's some kind of villain like so many things have shifted like in a second and that's a very uncomfortable reminder for me about like this is the world today and what it means to have ownership of yourself is mm-hmm. it's different now right oh i also uh as we were talking before this one of the as you said earlier like the reactions could be a whole college course on their own like honestly um but it was especially the reactions that were somewhere along the lines of saying that these this is uh you know the the worst thing that has mm-hmm. happened at the, mm-hmm. at the Oscars. <laughs> that it is um just so violent from people like 
who was it? It wasn't Judd Apatow who was the first person. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. honey, we have your tea. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> Speaking of the housewives, sorry to interrupt really quick. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I saw one from one of the housewives of New Jersey. And it's like, girl, you have pulled, have people's, a seat. You have pulled people's ponytails. <laughs> you have thrown red wine on people. <laughs> you went, no, 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 no. You need to sit down. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sorry, keep going. Take several seats. <laughs> several seats. People who are who are openly friends with folks who we know are abusers now, mm-hmm. who were abusing mm-hmm. people on set. Like mm-hmm. it was like, girl, what are you talking? You could have sat there and ate your food in the words of New York. <laughs> could have sat there and ate your food. Uh, and the thing, and it was especially you know, as someone who, especially someone who identifies as an abolitionist, to hear calls of he needed to be arrested. And, you know, why wasn't he dragged out of there and arrested? Chris Rock needs to ch- to press charges. And <laughs> I was like, now why? Now why is that the, res- the right. resort? Right. And right. brings me to what several folks said about like, so you're saying oh, he shouldn't have got violent. He sh- this shouldn't have got violent. We should just outsource the violence to the police. Like, <laughs> 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 or yeah, like the same people who call the police at the tiniest little thing saying, this was so yeah. violent. Honey, yeah. honey. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just, it, it was kind of astounding and and i not that i think that again not that i think that will's action was necessarily the right one but i do question the phrase that got used over and over and over again of violence is never the answer (laughs) and i was like that sounds great in theory however I navigate this world as a black person (laughs) and I know that there are times when there is violence done to you and the only other appropriate appropriate response or the one that could save your life or at least save your dignity is violence. Like, and it was to me I mean, even though, again, like, not that I think Will's actions were exactly correct, but I, it, it was telling to me that that was such a common phrase. And I was like, where do we get that from? And it was kind of like reflective of the culture of, of whiteness that <laughs> as someone said like, oh no, we only like our violence, our violence structural. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> it, it, it got me thinking about like, especially the state of the world and the things we are, the other types of violences we are allowing to flourish, like the people who are abusers who still get invited back to the Oscars and get awards and all of that. It it just kind of reflected a culture of complacency. The idea that violence is never the answer is obviously not a thing that we as Americans live by, right? Not at all. <laughs> um, not at all. See note, Ukraine, right? So like that's clearly not a thing that we are existing in. And then again, at the same time, the reality of 
what were the other options in the moment for two people who have probably also known each other for 30 some years, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is there no other kind of a thing that could have been done? And I don't know Jada Pinkett, obviously. Maybe that isn't obvious, because um, my cousin knows her and has a very <laughs> funny story about her, but that is neither here nor there. Um, the The question is also around, because we don't know her, we also don't know where her reaction to any of this was, right? And I do know as a person, if that shoe had been on a very different foot and, you know, I had been the Jada in this situation and that had been my spouse, I don't know where the mortification would have come from, right? I, I really don't. But, but boy, do I not look to be defended in that particular way right yeah, not usually no. yeah and <laughs> right like it, and it might have been a different thing like in a very different context but in that moment like i i mean i really i don't know right like i i really don't know because i feel like there's so many nuances here that are like racial gender-based historical and then also just deeply personal ones like we know chris and will know each other we know Chris and Jada have been in those odd Madagascar movies together. And <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if they're buddies, we don't know if they're colleagues, or we don't know if they really intensely dislike each other. And that there was a whole other thread of things playing out that we don't know, right? So, you know, this is one of the ones for me that like, I am questioning so many things that I think that I think in the last couple of days and and really being reminded that we can spend 30 years watching somebody thinking we know them and then come to terms with the fact that they are as human as anybody else they have real emotions they are going to respond to things as humans do which is unpredictably and then we're all sitting left trying to make sense of this in a grander way than the moment may have been Right, like this also could have just been two people who really dislike each other, and that just got played out in front of the world in a really unfortunate way. And again, not to excuse anything on either side, but like, boy, is this way more complicated than any of our think pieces are going to be able to untie. Wow. All I know is I don't want to hear one single word from anybody who gave Roman Polanski a standing ovation. How about that? Who thinks Annie Hall is the <laughs> pinnacle of cinema? <laughs> you can keep those opinions to yourself. Um, but yes, I, I do agree that it's it's so complicated and it brings up so many feelings and emotions. But unfortunately, <laughs> and I'm also just laughing because like before we started recording, it's like, are we going to talk about the slap? Do we think we should talk about the slap? <laughs> 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 and here we are, 45 minutes later. <laughs> but the last thought I'll, I'll just leave everyone with is like, as a person named Stephen Pasquale on Twitter said, this is why we call it the Scottish play. Everyone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I just had a thought about that. Anyway, but that was a great conversation. I'm sure we will continue having it because we live in America in 2022 and we are Black. <laughs> um, but for now, we have an amazing guest coming up 
So exciting. Minnesota Opera's first company artist is a Black woman. She is a mm. soprano named Zoe Reams. And this May, she is going to be Carmen in Carmen, directed by Denise Graves. Ooh. Amazing. <laughs> and Zoe Reams is joining us after the break. We'll be right back. Don't be late, or I'll whistle under your window. Yes, if you promise to wait in the street, if I'm late and not whistle under my window. For mom will be curious, and dad will be furious to hear whistling under a window. And welcome back to the score. Uh, the beautiful voice you just heard uh, is our next guest, um, the incomparable mezzo-soprano, uh, Zoe Reams, who has been lauded by Opera News for her Velvety Mezzo. Ooh, Velvety Mezzo. Okay, come on, Velvety. <laughs> <laughs> and for how she phrases with elegance and articulates uh, coloratura nimbly. Uh, raised in Chicago and a graduate of uh, Minnesota Opera's uh, Project Opera program. Zoe's gone on to get her, went on to get her bachelor's uh, in music at Lawrence University and studied at uh, the Houston Grand Opera Studio. She's since then gone on to sing at opera houses all over the country, like Chicago Lyric Opera, Des Moines Metro Opera, Houston Grand Opera, many, many more, and of course, Minnesota Opera. Uh, this season, Miss Reams made her house debut at the Metropolitan Opera in New York mm -hmm. City. Hello. <laughs> As Lily in James Robinson's acclaimed production of Porgy and Bess. Uh, she also joined Minnesota Opera as our very first company member, uh, where she performed Dorothee. I hope yes. I said that right. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> in Joseph Malone's Anonymous Lover, um, hopefully, which you all saw back in February. And so excited. She will sing the title role of Carmen in a new production directed by, I mean, directed by the one and only the Carmen. <laughs> Yeah, the Carmen, exactly. On eighth, fourteenth, and twenty second. Welcome to the show, Zoe Reams. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This is like super fun and exciting. I'm I'm so excited for this. Yay! <laughs> well, we are so excited to have you here. And I know that you know rehearsals for Carmen are about to start. How yeah. are you feeling? What are you doing to prepare? <laughs> it's exciting. There's all all of those emotions that you just uh, said. I'm excited. I'm, you know, Denise Graves is, you know, one of the names, I believe, in any given, you know, especially Black household where you mm -hmm. can say Denise Graves and people are going to know that name, right? Um, in terms of opera, it doesn't matter what kind of music. Mm, people know who Denise Graves is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. we know her. So it's exciting. It's exciting to even just, you know, be in the same room as her, let alone have her 
you know, direct something however many hundreds of times, right, that she's done this role. I'm just hoping to, like, be a sponge and soak it all up, soak up all of her wisdom and knowledge of this role. I mean, there's no one that knows it the way, you know, that she knows it um, as a performer. And I think it's just, I'm just completely honored to be able to have a Carmen, you know, I, I've done it only once. Um, we staged it in one week. <laughs> which oh my gosh. Crazy. And that took place at um, Opera Louisiane. So I got my okay. master's at LSU and um, Opera Louisiane hired me to do Carmen there. And it was like blitz Carmen, um, but I'm so thankful. <laughs> I'm so thankful I got the, you know, chance to do it, um, you know, once before at least. And we did it with dialogue as well. So I feel, you know, excited. I definitely, I feel like I'm in a space where I'm excited to learn. Um, I'm definitely going to be a newbie in the room and that's okay. Um, that's okay with me because I feel like I get to just kind of, I, I won't say sit on my, you know, sit on my heels, but I'm excited to observe um, and walk into a space where I can kind of just like observe the show's double cast and um, observe and listen um, and obviously present my Carmen with my ideas, but I'm excited to, to just get started, jump in and, and, and kind of take this process, um, not just as like for Carmen, but an overall process as an artist, right? Like how do I learn and how I can incorporate all these new things? Um, I think it's going to be a cool process for me as an artist, as a whole, not just you know, Zoe Reams, mental soprano singing Carmen. I think this is going to be a cool moment where like Zoe as an artist kind of grows and, and matures and, and has a sort of moment. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Nice. Nice. Now, have you gotten to talk to Denise at all? Yeah. Yeah. So we've had a couple discussions actually, um, you know, she was in Porgy and Bess, um, at the Met. So she sings Mariah in that mm-hmm. show. And um, we talked a little bit then and she showed me kind of more early stages. So I've kind of gotten to see a little bit of like projection of the, of the process, um, from her, which has been really cool seeing. <laughs> She's also just so personable. She was like, yeah, you want to see? <laughs> and just like pulls up the photos on her phone and it's like, yeah, look, here it is. Like just scrolling through her phone. Like we're looking at vacation pictures or something. It's cool. I, but I love that, you know, it doesn't have to be some big grand thing. And she's like, this is what I'm thinking. Um, this is what my vision is. So it's been cool to kind of like see her, you know, ca- and casually talk with her about it and why she thinks that way and why she wants to do certain things. Um, and even in those short conversations, like I learned a lot and um, yeah, I'm just excited to get in the room. Yeah. Nice, nice. That's so exciting. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super excited to see you. I also keep telling my friends and my family. Yay. And I was like, y'all have to come see Harmon and it's Denise Graves and and Zoe and there's <laughs> some artists and like <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sure they've been hearing about it for I... months. <laughs> it will, it will indeed be a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And like I like such amazing moment for you um and I wonder like other than Denise Graves the Denise Graves like what other folks are are you thinking about as you come to this moment who have been like amazing mentors or teachers or just like guides along the way so it's funny I one of my earliest childhood memories like of my entire life 
is a puppet show um, that used to be at, in Chicago at the Museum of Science and Industry. And my babysitter at the time, her name was Jane. She's since left the planet, but I loved her. And she would bring me to this puppet show because she knew that I loved it. And the scene was the top of act two, um, which is the tavern scene. So for me, this is like a kind of full circle moment just because I was truly like obsessed with that. Like literally, I remember her just like leaving me and taking the other kids and being like, okay, we'll be back in 20 minutes. And then she'd come back and be like, <laughs> I would still be like sitting there and she'd be like, all right, I'm gonna give you another 20 minutes. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like literally it was like that. I, I actually, as I've become an adult, I've like thought multiple times, like, where is that puppet show? Cause I, I want it. Like I want to, I, I want it in my, in my possession somehow. Um, so for me, that feels full circle. Also one of my early um, memories just of like studying music, you know, kind of like an undergrad um, was watching Carmen's song by Grace Bumbry. And seeing that, there was a YouTube video of her singing the Habanera and watching that for the first time, I remember just being so completely like enthralled with her version of Carmen, which is very, um, in my interpretation, it's like very coquettish and, um, but in kind of like a fun way, she's a very, it seemed like a very light Carmen to me. And her, she's first of all stunning, but the costume is beautiful. The way that she kind of just like slinks around stage is like, it's like magical. Um, and so she's also kind of like always half smiling. It's almost like she's singing it for herself and other people are just there, which is a very Carmen thing to do. <laughs> um, and I just felt like she embodied it so beautifully. Um, so for me, that's someone else who I completely am like just trying to pay homage to in some way, shape or form. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of time has been spent. I've learned this role or some of this role uh, pretty young, maybe some would say too young, <laughs> but I, um, I'm definitely looking forward to kind of, uh, I don't know, this is kind of like my little offering, um, and not just, you know, opera singers, just other Black singers in general. Someone I also think of is Mahalia Jackson, and um, for me, this is definitely like my little offering into the universe for those those women um, and men who have come before me. Um, also, I think of Carmen Jones. I think of Dorothy Dandridge mm -hmm. and her mm -hmm. magic, right? Like just a completely magical person. So yeah, I think of those kind of little things. And for me, that's, that's exciting um, to even be in doing the same, you know, in the same vein and the same path. But I really do think of it as like, for me, it's like an homage um, to be able to have the privilege to kind of give something back in a form. That's, that's how I kind of think about it. Oh, that made my heart all warm. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Zoe. It's so nice to meet you. Hi, um, you too. Since we saw you maybe, I guess, a year and a half ago doing the holiday concert, um, oh, yeah. my, my husband and I had exactly the same reaction. The minute you opened your mouth, we were both like, oh, 
Oh. <laughs> so we are, no, thank you. We are super, super excited about hearing you and, and Carmen and thoroughly enjoyed you and the anonymous lover. Um, and I'm kind of curious about um, some of what you're saying, right? Some of you've listed some really iconic singers, right? And I don't know that there are a lot of people who sing gospel music or R&B who haven't been influenced by Mahalia Jackson, whether or not they know it. And yeah. similarly about Grace Bumbry, right? She's like this huge figure in my head and everything she did on stage was wildly fascinating to me. We could have a whole show just talking about that clip of her singing Aida and Emneris. And I'm like, oh my oh, God, she's Stop. not playing around. So <laughs> one of my favorite things of all time. Like, how is it not like, anyway, yeah, it should be on like Times, like Seriously. in a Times YouTube like playlist somewhere. Like, Times <laughs> to be everywhere. But to that point, right, about like the power of of black singers in particular to be able to model things for generations coming after are as you're thinking about what your offering is what would you like to see for the singers who are coming behind you right what kinds of opportunities are you hoping that people have that you know maybe you didn't see as possibilities when you were coming up and i appreciate that you are still a very young woman right so you know you they're there are changes happening as we speak in the field, but I'm just yeah. kind of curious about how you're seeing that. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that I think is honestly the most radical uh, thing that I think could be done is for singers to stand in their own selves mm. on stage mm. as Black singers, no matter where they are, no matter what they're singing. Um, to stand in whoever they are at that moment in time. I think I was just speaking uh, about this the other day about the way that we are taught, especially what, you know, in the realm of classical music, if you go to like an actual, you know, a scholastic place where they're like, okay, we're all gonna sit in a classroom and learn about classical music. I would love <laughs> for there to just be more space it's a little claustrophobic, mm, um, mm. in my opinion. It's a little bit not conducive of artistry. Um, mm. And I think that as an artist, right, you have to, you know, I think there's room for more finger painting and less talking about like Monet. Mm -hmm. Like just let people figure it out on their own a little bit. Um, before you spoon feed them the version that you believe they should be or the version that's written in a textbook. Because as we know, a lot of times textbooks leave us out no matter what it is uh, of history, of, you know, of art, of music, um, of language, of travel, right? Um, Black people are not highlighted in a textbook fashion. And that's just the truth. Um, so I think it's more conducive to allow people to find themselves first and then have someone who, you know, understands that and truly cares for the artist that they're trying to build mold from there, right? Like someone who's doing, you know, who's throwing pottery, you know, you kind of, I think there's a point where you look at the thing itself, right? You're looking at this lump of clay. You don't just start 
digging away. You don't just start ripping things away and being like, no, no, no. You kind of look at it as for what it is first. Like, okay, this raw material has potential to be something else, but let me, let me approach the raw material as it is first, right? Let me not uh, completely take away because there's a point, I think, scholastically where everyone's like, you need to do this, you need to do that. Make sure you're doing this, that, this, and that, and this, and that. And so then you do all these things and these confinements. And then, you know, five, six, eight, ten years later, people are like, well, well, what, where's your, your specific personal artistry? Girl, <laughs> you needed to be telling me that 10 years ago. We needed to be talking about that because it is difficult to completely follow in line. And then suddenly, you know, people are revered for how they make people feel on stage, not for you know, they're French vowels. And you can't teach that from a textbook. And especially, I think it's difficult to teach that to kids of color who are even more left out of textbooks. And by textbooks, I just mean the whole situation in general. Um, so I think it's super important to look at the person first, especially when it comes to people, kids, children of color. Um, I hope all of the vocal pedagogists, voice teachers, and teaching artists <laughs> in the audience have taken notes on that. No, they, thank you for that, right? Because what we're talking about is how you build an artist, yeah. right? And and that can't be a, a cookie cutter At all. approach. <laughs> I will leave my personal experiences and training out of this conversation for now, but I will just say you and I are like right here on that. So thank Yay. you. Yeah. Well, building off of that, I'm curious, you know, in your opinion, what do you think that institutions like ours can do to continue to support artists of yeah. color who are coming up? I think we just need to be hired, period. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy mm -hmm. that something like this mm -hmm. exists. Um, and I'm talking everywhere on both sides. I think that it's just important, right? So, um, I remember I, I used to dance ballet and I went to a, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that I had this available to me in Chicago. I went to a black like dance school, right? Like it was 80% black girls in a situation where ballet, especially it's a lot different now, but at that time, you know, when I was three, four, five, 10, 11, there were no shoes your color. There were no tights your color. You were dyeing things by hand. You were, we called it pancaking. You had to pancake your shoes, which means put your skin color makeup on the shoes. And now we have people like Misty Copeland. And now we have Capizio and, you know, Block and all these, you know, dance companies recognizing that. But I think in terms of like actually taking the time to understand where that's coming from, it's just, slow and I think it, it has to be like everywhere like it has to be that like I was hired by someone of color and I'm being designed for by someone of color I remember one of the first times um I received my skin tone undergarments for a show um and I walked in the dressing room and I saw the undergarments and I was like oh my gosh this is not some like undescript beige color like I can hold my hand up to this like bodysuit that I'm gonna wear under my dress and it matches my skin. And I think those details for me, like even just 
that small of a detail, right? Like that's a small thing you could say, but like for me at that time where, you know, I'm already having questions and I'm already kind of pushing forward and all these things and you get that and it's like, oh, the, the little piece of something, you know, and hopefully in the future, you know, that's standard. But I think it's so important to have all sides, like administration, in the rehearsal room, in the audience, people who are fundraising, people who are producing things like like this, like you guys are, like not just as much as I love that this is happening, not just Orgy and Bess, right? Not just Blue not just as amazing as it is and as proud as I am of all my friends who are in that production, not just fire shut up in my bones, but also Cozy and Don Giovanni and all these other shows and Tosca and all these other shows that are just, you know, kind of run of the mill. You don't think about it. That needs, we need to be on stage there too. And I think that once that normalizes, we're really going to see a real shift in what opera is in general. Um, And I think that's what I think. I think organizations need to just hire us everywhere. (laughs) I know it's kind of vague, but like, that's what I think. Like, I just think it's important. I think, and I think it has to happen from the inside out. Like, I think it has to be radical. Like, I think it has to be, we are actively going to do this and everyone's going to be on board and everyone's going to understand why we're doing it and for what reasons. Yeah, talking about the undergarments took me back to uh, show choir when I, me and the other black girl had to wear nude tights and we had to explain to the choir director, nude for who? Right. Mm -hmm. Because if I put this nude on, I'm going to look ashy. And (laughs) what we look like. And honestly, there have been times I remember (laughs) the tights that I got given, I didn't even wear them because I'm like, girl, I'm not about to go on stage. And then you think about stage lights and, you know, it's like, I'm not about to do it. I'm not about to be out here looking a fool. And that actually was a liberating moment when I decided for myself. And that I think it takes, it takes courage because you have been told, I mean, I can't speak for everybody. So there would have been some people that are like from jump, I'm not wearing it. But for me, you know, being in the kind of circuit, right? Of school and young artist program. And it's like, you do what you're told. <laughs> but there was a point where I was like, look, y'all, this isn't cute. <laughs> it's not cute. And it doesn't benefit me in any way, especially when I have to go on stage and, you know, Mm -hmm. perform. And these are things that, you know, like I said, seem small, but in the back of your head, I'm looking down at my shins, like, girl, you look ashy, the wig's not right, the outfit don't fit. It's like those little things. That is not little. I'm sorry. (laughs) Going out on stage looking ashy is not little. It's not little, right? It's not little. I mean, we were teenagers when this happened, so ultimately we did just have to go with it. Yeah. What? Yeah, you know what I mean? We had to go with it. But I was like, when I'm an adult, never again. Mm -mm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) To a point where you're like, I refuse to be ashy. I refuse to go on stage looking a fool. I refuse to wear this dry wig. All of it, I refuse. And like, period, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just the way that it is. It's like, and that's how I feel now, but there was definitely time where I kind of was just like, 
having to mentally like be like, okay, well, maybe when I'm not on stage during between this scene, I can quickly run to my dressing room, brush this crazy wig down. And then, you know, like what? Ain't nobody else thinking about that. Everybody just, you know, has their stuff on. But literally there were times that I felt like that. So it's important all around to have, you know, us. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what has the shift from, or shift to a company artist been like for you? And like, what what new things come with that? And like, what do you think of just like that model in general or that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I think that the, it's like a European model, right? So in Germany, they have the fest contracts Mm -hmm. and guest contracts. And so usually um, a fest will be a year or two where you come into the house and you sing a certain, you know, amount list type of roles. And I think that, well, one thing the pandemic taught us is that ain't nobody sitting on their laurels with one thing I think it's like a time of the past where like this is what I do like we just don't really operate like that anymore in the world especially after the pandemic but this sort of thing actually does allow that which is nice right you know you get a master's degree in something and you're like wow I really hope I get to actually do what I have a master's degree in (laughs) and (laughs) and this this like allows you to do that and I think that it also provides security. Um, I don't have, you know, kids or a family, but I think once that happens, like things like this are something that you think about, something that is important. It also gets, you know, travels a lot. Travel can be intense, showing up, you know, jet lag and getting sick from airplanes and adjusting to new living situations and hotels. And um, that's just part of the, the gig. But that eliminates, this eliminates a lot of that um, with this, with this model, which I'm thankful for, because as much as people are like the glitz and glamour of the traveling life, and as much as I do like to travel, Mm. (laughs) it it, it gets to be a lot, right? It gets to be a lot. So for me, it's been nice to kind of be in one place. Um, It's also been nice to still, you know, pursue other things um, that I'd like to do. Um, I've had some time to think about um, things down, you know, much farther down the road, like, um, you know, being involved with schools and, um, you know, different projects that I have in mind, um, which has been nice. And that I think allows time to be a well-rounded creative person rather than just, okay, I got here last night. Let me make sure I know my music to show up and sing tomorrow, because that just sometimes feels intense when you're, you know, constantly doing that it's nice to have time to you know think about some you know another creative outlet um that still obviously is music related but is not just you know show up and sing which has been I'm I'm really super grateful for that and like I said especially now because it's hard and it's hard for someone my age who is still considered a young singer um to kind of fit in you know, in a place where, you know, everybody's just looking for jobs and, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes companies are going to take the seasoned performer over somebody who it would be their first time doing it because, you know, we're in a panorama still. So there's stuff going on and people need security. And I get that, but this has allowed me to 
you know, not only do something like Carmen, not only, you know, have a steady job, but also have time to expand as just a creative person in general. So I, I'm totally, I'm totally thankful that I've had this opportunity. Well, switching gears a little bit, um, since you are about to uh, make your uh, Minnesota de- debut as Carmen, <laughs> um, we thought it would be super fun to go back into the archives and watch uh, 1998's uh, Carmen, a hip hopera, <laughs> starring one Miss Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter, the queen. full <laughs> name. Yes, absolutely, always. Because <laughs> you know we stand on this podcast, so any any excuse to get you know Giselle in there. Oh, it's from two thousand one. Oh, my bad, two thousand one. Excuse me. Okay. Excuse me. Directed, of course, by the legendary Robert Townsend. Yes, absolutely. We have to give him his flowers as well, um, but. I realized in watching it that like as much as MTV as I was watching in the late 90s, early 2000s, <laughs> and as much as I was standing then Destiny's Child and Beyonce, I had never seen it before, but I know. Shame. I know, right? I had heard about it like in college, I think. Um, someone had brought it up and I had actually only seen Carmen Jones, <laughs> which is a testament to basically my mom and, <laughs> and her being you know of that era and being like one of our favorite things to do is watch black and white movies um and even though that's not you know black and white it's earlier much earlier than uh, 2001 hip uh, carmen um but yeah i i think someone and i didn't believe it at first someone was like oh yeah beyonce blah blah, blah and carmen i was like i just heard beyonce and carmen and i was like oh. <laughs> <laughs> and i didn't have to dig that far but i found i found it and i was like i was i was i was took i was like wow <laughs> okay i mean i have to say i was impressed i was i, was I had a good, i had a good time <laughs> absolutely i mean i know people that don't love it but at the same time she's holding her own like mm. and i also think for me seeing it i i expected her to sing and the men to rap and i love that she raps mm-hmm. like that's one of my favorite things about it is that i just i love that she raps because i think it shows like i mean a lot of people i think also a lot of people don't realize like things about opera in general and how kind of rough it is mm-hmm. but like Carmen is Carmen is lives a very fringe life like actual Carmen like how she how she moved to the world in today's modern society would be considered rough right mm-hmm. like yeah. and mm-hmm. I think that a lot of time people see this like opera heightened version and we're kind of talking about this too about you know, the actual novella compared to the opera, Bizet's Carmen, it's like this elevated, like, kind of uh, coy, but still sweet and sexy version of Carmen. Whereas, like, the novella Carmen, she's rough. Like, <laughs> <laughs> <he> rough. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, I like that she was hanging with the boys in the hip hopper because that's what C- Carmen would really be doing. Um, I appreciated that. And I think that a lot of times people don't really like 
understand what's going on in opera. Like it was funny. I had a conversation with my mom and I was like, yeah. So then they, you know, the whole kind of act three and four, I'm like, yeah. And then they take the contraband and she was like, contraband. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, ma, like, they're literally smugglers. Like that's what's happening in this opera. And she's like, oh, I don't remember that. I'm like, yeah, the same way that no one remembers the Queen of the Night aria is, you know, someone's mother telling them to kill someone else. And if they don't do it, that they're gonna kill her. Like no one, no one remembers that, right? Like, oh, it's just like, you know, oh. <laughs> 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 but it's like the core of what's actually happening is like very intense and dramatic. Um, which is another reason I think that basically opera needs to be everywhere because what more drama do you need in your life besides that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, that's tangent. That's tangent. But yeah, I love Carmen the Hip Opera. I love that she raps and I think it's fun and cute. I know people who don't love it, but I kind of love it. You know, um, it your your point about Beyonce as a rapper is a really interesting one to me because I remember I hadn't seen it in 21 years. I watched it when it came out because of my obsession with Beyonce and my ongoing interest with adaptations of opera and theater in what I consider to be the real world, right? <laughs> and the the challenge I had with it as a college student watching it was the idea that Beyonce as my generation's preeminent vocalist was cast in a role and then ask not to sing, right? And because Beyonce is such a sophisticated musician, she negotiates the hip hop extremely well, right? But I kept wanting there to be like one of these moments where the emotion gets really heightened. And instead of her like rapping kind of in the middle of her voice, like she would like plant her right foot, throw her head back and like give us a full throated something. Because I think the challenge for me, and I will say again before the beehive comes from me, I have been in love with this woman since the mid 90s. There is not a question of anything other than her utilization. And it is simply this idea that like, because growing up, I was very into women rappers, like it was something that I found so compelling there are people who actually really do what they were asking Beyonce to do, right? Like, I I can't get over this idea that Foxy Brown and Eve weren't sitting at home watching the hip hop or being like, right? Like, there's this (laughs) whole cohort. Ah, Foxy Brown! (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. I, You know, I just kind of wonder, like, you know, Emil, Soleil, Mia X, there were all of these women who like were making so much money, Lil' Kim, right? Selling sexuality, hardness, and hip hop. And and they kind of went with Beyonce, who is extraordinary, but especially like late 90s, early 2000s, Beyonce didn't really sit in that space of like owning her sexuality in the same way, right? And there were moments Mm -hmm. of it that like because i watched them back to back mm. uh carmen jones and then um oh cool and carmen then- the hip hopper there's a way that like dorothy dandridge negotiates every bodily movement every arch of the eyebrow oh my gosh right with like this with <laughs> oh, absolute aplomb that beyonce hasn't yet developed into the performer, she's only 20 at the time, right? Who can do the same kinds of things. I mean, that said, like she had some great moments, 
right? Um, she manages to pull all of the emotions where they need to be, the way they switched up the death at the end. Like, yeah. you know, I felt like I was really, really here for it. Um, and I appreciated a lot the supporting cast. Um, I mm -hmm. forgot that Makai Pfeiffer used to look like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that, yeah. Okay. Police officer Makai. Uh oh. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there were no there were moments like between like Raw Digga, uh, most deaf, their relationship to rap it's just very different from Beyonce because they yeah. are differently skilled. Right. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't quite let go of that mm -hmm. because, because I can't, I guess I couldn't, I was just so present to how outside of her skill set Beyonce yeah. was sitting. So whatever else was going on, she also had to like, I have to make this work. And then right. they kept reminding us by like giving us, backgrounds of destiny's child songs that like no, she... <laughs> you're like wait what <laughs> right it's like she does other things we're just not asking her to do any of them but again like i it's an enjoyable way to spend an hour and 45 minutes right, right. like it it is very very fun i just wish what is singing at like that's all i kept coming back 100 i mean it's interesting because i i felt it's funny as i'm working through carmen Bizet's Carmen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I find myself, and this is another thing going back to kind of like the heightened version of it, right? Like if you really look at the source material and the score, a lot of music that Carmen sings is dance music or mm -hmm. folk song-esque mm -hmm. of, of her time and place. Um, it's not this heightened, like, overdone, perfectly operatic music. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the music in itself is amazing and perfectly beautiful. <laughs> but the way that she comes off singing it, like I said before, a lot of it, some of it, she sings to herself. Um, these are just songs that she knows that people happen to just stand around and want to watch her sing it because it's the most compelling thing they're going to see all day. And I think that, like, I liked I liked the rapping part because it was closer to speech. And I think something that I'm learning as I'm learning the role is bringing, bringing the singing closer to speech. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, I think Jose really has the more heavy lifting in terms of singing opera, if you will. I mean, I'm still gonna approach it with my operatic instrument, but the way that the music is, his emotion is translated in the actual music where Carmen, and this is also a test to her personality, where she doesn't really let people in and she doesn't let people you know, know what she's thinking, but she's just singing songs. A lot of them are songs versus an aria or some grand emotional gesture, which is pretty much all Jose does every time he opens his mouth, you know, is extremely torn and extremely vulnerable an extremely heightened emotion, right? Um, whereas Carmen opens her mouth and sings the Habanera, which is a complete dance melody, or the Segadilla, or, I mean, there are very few pinpointed parts in this where I would say maybe in the duet, and maybe you could argue for the card aria um, in act three. Other than that, um, a lot of what she's doing is reacting and, and, I think it, it would 
you know, dare I say, let me not get fired. It would translate closer <laughs> to like rap or speech versus some operatic aria. Um, and I think that's what I identified with it in, in the hip hop row was her closeness. I appreciated her not singing because the closeness of rap to speech um, was something that I identified with in the actual opera itself. Um, and I thought that was cool. I thought, of course they could have had, they could have wrote, somebody could have wrote some music. Quincy Jones could have been up in there. Some, you know, they could have done something, <laughs> but they didn't do that. And I think it's interesting um, because it would have been easy to have most deaf, you know, have something on there or something mm -hmm. like, but they didn't, they didn't do that. And I think it kind of pulls the actual source material Carmen into 2001, which is like a cool parallel thing for me to see. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there were, there were a lot of pieces that I was thinking about relative to the overall construction of it, right? Like how they were utilizing the music because it, it was very apparent that like the, the proximity between speech and uh, music utilizing hip-hop as that instrument totally. is very important and, and very logical where some of my critiques did come in is what they chose to musicalize as as opposed <laughs> to what they left as a scene yeah. Yeah, right yeah. and then <laughs> no i'm sorry go ahead no 100 percent. i agree with you there were some funny parts that i was like wait girl what why did you <laughs> why did you do that <laughs> And and then kind of like uh so Reagan Gomez Preston and Joy Bryant are two of my more favorite actresses from you know '90s transitioning into the the two thousands right and I felt like with both of them it was like a curious underutilization mm -hmm. uh, especially like I felt the same way yeah like Michaela is a very interesting character and I think Reagan was such a good choice yeah. because she has like this really sweet disposition she's totally. absolutely gorgeous like she has this girl next door quality and then it's like we are going to give you nothing to do and it's like mm -hmm. can can y'all find <laughs> this lady to do in this movie so that part was a little weird to me but yeah no yeah, i could agree. have been something where she was you know the one she realizes what has transpired with her fiance right. there could have mm -hmm. been a sickening bar there mm, there could yes. have been like mm -hmm. it could have like a good i'm leaving you bob mm -hmm. like yeah. i live mm -hmm. for that no she just slapped him and said i hate you and ran away i know <laughs> like, girl that's <laughs> all you got <laughs> we definitely need like a woman scorn moment especially with the liberties that they took at the end mm -hmm. i feel like why not take some more liberties like might as well like have a moment that's so true I never really thought about that but yeah we definitely needed that moment of like spotlight woman scorned like I am out of here girl bye that vibe yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. and speaking of the music like I guess one of the critiques uh, I don't I did enjoy it I enjoyed it so much my whole I love how we're like it. we love it please don't come for me please don't come for us <laughs> if it were to be done again mm. like I would love to see 
more utilization of just like the different types of hip hop mm-hmm. to articulate mm-hmm. different oh, yeah. moments. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Like how dope would that be if there was like in if there was more of a southern rap vibe at some point mm-hmm. where it fit or something sounds like more Blaze was more. a little bit more West Coast. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. a little G-Funk in there mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Like, I would definitely, that's what I would want to explore if it were that's really cool, yeah. done again. Because yeah. hip-hop has so many different colors and that's so, so many different flows and all of that. I think I think most deaf tried to bring us a little bit of that, who I I appreciated so much watching yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one, I already love Yasin Bey. Yes, uh, Yasin Bey is Bey. Um, <laughs> love him. And it was just so good at playing like a very sly mm-hmm. character and the way he just flows, like fit it perfectly. I <laughs> I had I, to tell like my housemates, like y'all actually, I think this is way more interesting yeah. than maybe the, how the character turns out in the opera. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. And I think like everyone does kind of have their own little, I mean, that's a, that's a super like operatic thing to do, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone has like, we're talking about like Wagner light motif, like mm-hmm. except like rap, like that's like what we're saying, which I think is like really cool. And like, no, I totally agree. Like Beyonce and her crew have music, and like even there are parts in um in the score where you know Jose, you are reminded that he's a soldier with the way that he sings, or or even the way that Carmen imitates him, mm-hmm. um, which is really fun and interesting too. Like she imitates you know bugle horns and things like this and um yeah that was that's a really good idea I never thought about that but I love that different types of rap I love it well now all I'm thinking about is little Kim as Karen oh my god can you imagine can you imagine a remake with like Meg the Stallion oh my god oh yes oh we just made a million dollars (laughs) (laughs) copyright 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 yeah I'm gonna write that down like literally I feel like Meg or even like I don't know if you guys know her name but um well her name is literally no name um love no name mm -hmm. I feel like somebody like that like a true like lyricist how insane would that be like and I feel like she would totally be in her element. I also think it would be interesting like for her to speak on like, because Carmen also kind of does this too, like to speak on her life, like to just be able to speak on her life and her culture and like no name, just like, that's what she does. Um, I'm kind of sad she's like no longer really making music and that like hurts my feelings, but um, she's actually, a, a, I don't, I'm not gonna say she's my friend, but my our mom's, <laughs> Our moms are really close, and I've oh, met. Wow. Yeah, our moms oh are gosh. close, and I've met her once, and I think that would be something that's like really like up her alley, and I think she would really be able to bring something like super cool to that. Yeah. yeah now that you bring up someone like No Name, like another thing I appreciated about the hip opera is just like there's some interesting like intracommunal dynamics amongst black folks that it is mm-hmm. more like it's like what you're saying about the novel being more gritty than yeah. the opera like I feel like the hip hop got back to some of that and like mm-hmm. the dynamic with among I mean among the cops and or among right. people view them or you know the I 
the friends running off like with this rapper or whatever is like, yeah, just, yeah, like yeah. really real as <laughs> 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 or you know chasing the fame or the money and you know getting excited and swept away no, by real, that yeah. and like I feel like someone like no name or like other like really thoughtful MCs could get into that even further no 100% like I think totally that would be like uh, a like a version of like literally uplifting the culture because they would totally and they would also murder it like it would be so good like yeah <laughs> well Zoe I know I'm looking at the clock and I know you are a very busy woman with a very busy schedule <laughs> <laughs> so I hate to cut this conversation short but we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to have you back on again and we can continue yeah. this conversation yes please yes please absolutely also we should just like get a drink sometime yeah. Yes, yes, please. One hundred percent. Well, now that you know this, you know, panda bears. Another new one. Quote unquote. I don't know. <laughs> but yes, we absolutely we will have to do that. But all of you out there, what you all need to do is go see Zoe and Carmen May eighth, fourteenth, and twenty second at the Ordway Center. Uh, for performing arts, please go to mnopera.org and get those tickets right now. Go do it because you know we heard you sing um, the habanera at uh, Opera Afuera in oh, yeah. the fall, and Paige and I were sitting next to each other, and we just leaned over and we were like, "Girl, sell them tickets." so take it from me if, if it's any if it's half as good as you were at opera of where it's going to be amazing. thank you so, thank um you. in the meantime um do you have any projects coming up that you want people to know about social media handles so people can follow um, you yeah my instagram is zoe z-o-i-e imani which is my middle name i-m-a-n-i um I am kind of, Carmen is my vibe right now. I'm definitely working <laughs> on, on some cool projects, which are much in the future to do with schools and things like that. Um, some, some school curriculum, some positive affirmation lullabies for kids of color. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so those kinds of things are exciting for me. I love the kids. Um, I love education. And I think it's just super important um for music for self-esteem for brain development I'm kind of like a weird uh brain development like nerd so (laughs) (laughs) so that stuff is fun to me but yeah those are the kind of things that I'm doing in the future but for now it's all Carmen all the time so as Rocky said get your tickets um and I'm looking forward to it thank you guys so much for having me Thank you so much. It was an honor. And we will see you soon at the Yay. bar. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> All right. Yay, and, we will, <laughs> and we'll be right back with Pure Black Joy. All right. And we are back. Thank you once again, Zoe, for joining us. She is a delight. I could have sat there and talked about Beyonce all day. And actually, I probably will, because it's time for our favorite segment. And the one, and the two, and the one, two, three, four. It's peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. Yes. Shoulder shimmy. I like that. 
<laughs> and I'd also like to point out that in the in past recordings, it seems like I'm off the beat. I believe that it's just because there is a delay in the Zoom that is not because I am off the beat. <laughs> nice like save. <laughs> Girl, don't play with me. Uh-uh. That's necessary to play. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Rocky does no, have no, no, rhythm. No. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Any hoodle, Lee, would you like to go first, hater? <laughs> yes, um, and I will say something non-hatery for once. Um, a big shout to a couple of Oscar winners from this past weekend, Questlove, um, having a, a very, very well-deserved moment. The winner of this year's honorary award, the great Samuel L. Jackson, um, and I know Paige has a, a bit to say about uh, his wife, Latanya Jackson, uh, Latanya Richardson Jackson's new endeavor. So I won't say too much about them, but super excited for him. And then thirdly, um, fantastically skilled Broadway actress Ariana DeBose, matching um, yes. so that trophy. That speech um, was so beautiful at the it really the, was. The little at the end. Uh, first Afro-Latina, first openly queer woman winning an Oscar. And first person to win for like a remake remake, right? Mm -hmm. Like she won exactly oh. the same that Rita Moreno won for. Um, well, it's, it is interesting that two, two Latina women have won Oscars for the same role. There have only been three altogether and two of them won literally for the same role in kind of a deeply problematic yes. work, right? So like, <laughs> there's there's a bit to unpack there. That could be the second class that we are going to teach <laughs> in addition to that other one, so. And I was a little mad because I've always said that when I win my Oscar, I'm gonna get up there and I'm going to shout out all the queer black people in the world. So she told us she, she took my bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess there can be two, that's fine. <laughs> well, when you win, you can just like shout her out as well. Yes, yes, there we go. Repeat it. All right. I don't think you could say something like that too many times. <laughs> that is true, that is true. <laughs> Well, mine is related. Um, I, like I said before, um, I wasn't planning to watch the Oscars, but then I sat down and I saw Beyonce mm -hmm. in her beautiful green dress and Blue Ivy um, mm. also dancing her little behind off. And I had never heard um, that song. Um, mm but I thought it was beautiful. And then I was like, oh great, well then, you know, Beyonce is gonna win an Oscar. I guess I'm just gonna settle in. <laughs> because that song was beautiful. That performance was incredible on the Compton tennis courts. Everything that she was saying in that song, the beauty of being alive. I felt that being alive on the same time as the planet, on the planet as Beyonce <laughs> is a beautiful thing. And then of course she, she lost to William Eyelash, but that's fine. <laughs> Which is fine, I guess, whatever. <laughs> but the performance itself was beautiful and brought me all the pure black joy that I needed. So thank you, Beyonce, as always. 
Thank you, Blue Ivy. And just really quickly, Lady Jess, uh, the violinist, uh, was prominently featured in the performance. And I really just want to acknowledge, I love that Beyonce has been so thoughtful about showing Black women instrumentalists, mm -hmm. both in orchestral and in more popular context. I, I really, really liked seeing that Unli had been our previous guest and Lady Jess has volunteered her time to do stuff for the Dream Unfinished before. Oh, okay. So mm -hmm. that was a, a nice little bit of, aww. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I feel like it's like a true testament to like Beyonce's intentionality with like mm -hmm. who she puts on stage that I know so many people at this point who, well, I know one or two who have been a part of a Beyonce performance or know somebody who has mm -hmm. because she's just out here employing mm -hmm. our people like that. Mm -hmm. Like, that's beautiful. Really mm -hmm. is. Yeah, like, I think I'm two degrees from the, the woman who designed the costumes for the Mrs. Carter tour. And when I found that out, I was just like, <gasps> <laughs> Well, my pure black joy is about some of my uh, favorite actors uh, performing one of my favorite, maybe my favorite period playwright. Um, mm -hmm. So it was announced that beginning this September, August Wilson's The Piano Lesson will be on Broadway, directed by LaTanya Richardson Jackson, yes. starring Samuel L. Jackson, yes. and Danielle Brooks, and John yes. Washington. Oh my God. I'm, right? <laughs> right? Hello? I, Hello? The talent. I'm, I'm yeah. so here for it. <laughs> I'm so here for it. I... I'm excited for this for multiple reasons. Again, I love August Wilson. I love the piano lesson. I believe it is part of the his Pittsburgh like cycle. Yeah, it is. Plays. Yes. Yeah, it is part of the cycle. Um, but it is one of the ones that like I have not got to see on on stage yet. Um, so I'm like really trying to make it out. I'm really trying to go. And I often think about how like people like Samuel L. Jackson, like we know him from like movies for the most part but they've been killing it on stage. Mm -hmm. Like people, I think of people like him, like Denzel Washington, like Angela Bassett. Um, Viola Davis. Viola mm. Davis. Uh, yeah, they, <laughs> they are just, they're gonna slay it. I just can't wait. I'm so excited. And August Wilson's work just means a lot to me. It's just catching the nuances of black life I once had a professor at Howard say that like his plays sound like jazz mm -hmm. and uh, that that is just so true. And I love the piano lesson because it like exemplifies like just, if you haven't seen it yet, there's a piano that is passed down through this family. Um, and that is like just such a black thing to have this item that you pass on or, these things that make you the matriarch or patriarch. And like, he's just, he captures those things so beautifully and I cannot wait. I'm, I'm really excited about like this wave of people in general who are doing more of his work and putting it on Broadway again. And um, 
I don't know where HBO is at with like developing those movies, but I hope right. Thank you. <laughs> I hope they're still doing that. I will be checking up on you. The people are waiting. Um, <laughs> so just yes, super excited and congratulations to to all of them. Congratulations to the whole team. Well, we're gonna make a field trip. I was I was thinking, right? The okay. score live from some Broadway lobby will probably yes. be coming out. But you know, Samuel created one of the roles in the piano lesson in the original production at Yale Rep. And I think it's a beautiful bit of full circle. I am absolutely obsessed with August Wilson. My favorite play by him is Seven Guitars. If you don't know it, you should, first of all, shame. And then secondly, <laughs> go read it. He it's has so a recurring- much shame today. <laughs> I, don't, I, I think it's the weather, sorry. <laughs> He has a character in, um, that's referenced in Seven Guitars that recurs in other plays named Bynum. And there's a line about him that he is, uh, quote, Haitian or Jamaican or something. I believe he is Jamaican and he is my favorite character. And one day somebody will have sense enough to cast me as Bynum. Just putting that out there for any future Broadway revivals. I'll dust off my equity card and serve the kids in case y'all are curious. So you hear that, well, casting directors? You hear well, that? Maybe we'll put you on camera <laughs> and, and ruin we'll just... my chances. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> right, so we need to move the podcast to video from now on. Is what you're yes. saying? Yes. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> We can just all have just all sorts of just sides and the podcast can just be (laughs) us just (laughs) auditioning for the parts that we want. (laughs) Um, Cool. Well, I think that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Um, Thank you all for listening. Um, We sure had fun. I hope you all are staying warm and dry throughout this fake spring. Or if you're somewhere (laughs) where it's actually spring, you can go F yourself. What? (laughs) (laughs) Or you can send me a plane ticket to wherever you are. Or that. Or that. That's probably nicer and healthier. Do that. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I want to thank Zoe Reams once again for being our guest. Please, everyone, go out and get your tickets for Carmen. Um, In two weeks, we will be joined by the fabulous Simone Harco who is also another fabulous Black woman who will be in our upcoming production of Carmen. And she will be with us to talk about her experiences uh, in rehearsals and with Denise Graves. And and maybe we'll watch another movie. Maybe we'll watch Carmen Jones. We'll go back in time and watch Carmen Jones. Um, So stay tuned for that. And we will see you in two weeks. Um, Between now and then, if you wanted to, you could leave us a review <laughs> on Apple or Spotify or wherever you are listening to this right now um, with words, preferably. I know you hear this on every other podcast, but it really does help. It really does. Or just five stars. Five. Count them. Count them up. One, two, three, mm-hmm. four, five. Don't stop at three. There's a fourth and a fifth one. Okay. <laughs> And of course, subscribe, share with all of your friends. And I think that's it. So any words of wisdom from anyone before we leave? Not my strong suit, no. Okay, well, I'll just say don't.
but let's let's go into this week and try not to slap the dog piss up anybody. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> breathe, breathe. I'm sure there'll be one or two that might be the slap, but just breathe. That's the wise word. Deep breaths. Yes, there we go. Deep mm-hmm. breaths. Deep breaths. Yoga, maybe. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we love you. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>